0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. A church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. My wife had a prophetic moment uh, this week with our boys. Uh, We were having a family discussion and she challenged them. Um, to be bold in their faith. And so as she was speaking to the boys, she kept emphasizing this word, bold, be bold. And uh, our little Mary Grace, who's five, was apparently listening in. And with some anxiety, she declared, Mama, I don't want to be bold. And we were like, why? And she said, because I want to have hair. (laughs) Um, We all got a kick out of that. I, I can remember when I was a little boy, about Mary Grace's age, having a very similar experience. In, in our children's church hour, at least, in the upbringing of my church, we sang a kid song uh, called uh, "Father Abraham." Now, do any of you remember this? Or, uh, "Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord." And and then you stomp your feet and you swing your arms and. And I can remember, I'm conscious of this, I can remember as a kindergartner being perplexed as we sang this song in church because I couldn't understand or I didn't know that Abraham Lincoln had so many sons (laughs) and I couldn't understand how how in the world I could be one of them. And of course, in time, I began to realize that we were singing about the Abraham of the Bible, but for a good stretch, I can remember Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln making his way into my imagination. Your father Abraham had many sons. Our reading this morning from Genesis sits on one of the great fault lines of the Bible. The text is one of those defining historical moments where everything preceding is before and everything that's subsequent to it is after. Because a cosmic storm had been brewing for some time that led to this moment. And the storm, along with the sting of its lightning, had been caused by sin. We're in the season of Lent, as I know you all know. So if there's a good time to talk about sin, now is as good a time as ever. And to read Genesis chapters 3 through 11 is to take a crash course in sin and its devastating effects. The fruit was eaten. Abel was murdered, corruption increases, the floodwaters are unleashed and then they recede, but sin still remains present and corrosive as ever, culminating as it does in the Tower of Babel. And here, sin beats its chest in triumph as humanity worships itself and its own achievements. Who needs God anymore? We have faith in ourselves. Genesis 1 through 11 presents sin as if a contagious pathogen has been unleashed in our world. And if you are living and if you are breathing, you will catch it. Humanity cannot escape the clutches of sin. So in all the chapters that are are leading up uh, to God's encounter with Abraham, we see sin doing what sin does best. It's breeding and it's festering and it's bringing about disorder and chaos God's intent for his creation was shalom or peace or the best conditions for human flourishing. God wrote creation symphony in a major key, beautiful, bombastic and lyrical. But sin enters into the scene and now the music of the whole cosmos appears trapped in a minor key. The world is now distorted and it's destructive and sin is breeding and it's growing And as St. Augustine said so long ago, sin becomes the punishment for sin. We just don't have to look very hard for evidence supporting the story of Genesis 3 through 11 and the corrupting effects of sin. We see it in our world on the global level. We know the corruption in our own lives, and we've even seen it with the Houston Astros as well. It's everywhere. And Genesis 1-11 through presents the world from this macro perspective. The scope of the chapters are as wide as the whole of the cosmos. And so as readers, we're given an understanding of how the world came to be by the power of God's word. And then how the world became undone and distorted by the devastating effects of sin. So from this grand macro view of the whole cosmos, we are telescopically transported to this microscopic level of one man and his family in Genesis chapter 12. Father Abraham and his many sons. And so it begins. In the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible, God's great rescue plan of humanity takes flight with these simple words. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country. I'm often taken back by the Bible's lack of attention to details. I mean, just think about how much is not said in Genesis chapter 12. How did Abraham hear the word of the Lord? Did it come to him in a dream in the stillness of his own thoughts? Was it audible in the same way that our communication is audible? And I I know we're dealing with the patriarchal world back in Genesis 12, but, but how exactly does one communicate this to Sarah and the rest of the extended family? And the Bible is uninterested in providing any of these details. The narrative is about as stripped down and bare as you can imagine. And here are its central features. God commands, go Abraham. Then God gives Abraham promises. I will bless you. I will make your name great through your offspring. Abraham shall all the nations of the world be blessed. And then the final feature, Abraham went. God gives commands and promises and Abraham responds in the obedience of faith. Nothing in this text about Abraham's psychological state. We know in this world, back in the ancient Near East, to leave one's clan or one's family was to make a move toward extreme danger. Yet Genesis 12, 4 begins with this almost unimaginably understated phrase. And Abraham went. This simple act of faith on Abraham's part is the way that God begins to restore and to bless the whole fallen, corrupted, and disordered world. This is the new in the beginning of the Bible. By the promises of God and the faith of a single man named Father Abraham, the whole world will be blessed. And Abraham went, period. The season that we're in now, the season of Lent, is, good, is a good season for us to engage our faith head on. Of course, Lent is is also a season where we can run into dangers of distorting our faith, where we might turn spiritual disciplines into some form of of self-congratulation or self-absorption. We all run into these kinds of challenges. I do too. But Lent can be a gift for us in the sense of a season where we take time to turn our attention once again to Jesus Christ, the object of our faith and our hope. This is a season for retooling and recalibrating our hearts and our minds toward those things that are of eternal significance, especially when our tendency, my tendency, is to think that this world is really all that matters. As the old spiritual reminds us, this world is not our home. We are just passing through. And the Bible, throughout its pages, is quick to tell us that Father Abraham symbolizes for you and for me what saving faith actually is. And this is a really big deal, according to Paul, because our future hope and our well-being rides totally and completely on this facet of our faith. Listen to how the Apostle Paul frames the matter. I love these verses from Romans 4. This is what Paul says. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so he became the father of many nations. He faced the fact that even though his body was as good as dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God. If you're anything like me, and I don't assume that you are, but if you are like me, You find yourself wavering internally on all kinds of matters in life. I'll have to confess to you this morning, I sometimes miss my confident and assured 25-year-old self. I'm pretty sure my wife doesn't miss that guy. But sometimes I miss that guy. Because on so many matters that demand wisdom in this life, I find myself, maybe you do too, yearning for clarity and wishing for a little less wavering. This is so crucial. The life of faith does not have as its object or focus my ability to think better or manage crises more effectively or navigate the challenges of life more confidently. And I'm not downplaying this morning the importance of wisdom in this life. God tells us to ask him for wisdom and he promises to give it liberally but I'm talking here about my standing before God and the security and the assurance that comes from knowing that God in Christ Jesus is for me and he's for you because the life of faith does not waver concerning the promises of God. The life of faith sets its gaze like a flint on what God has promised in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. I stumbled across uh, this quote from C.S. Lewis while preparing for today's sermon. It's it's from his classic work, Mere Christianity. I'd like to read it to you this morning. It, It caught me. It caught me when I read it. This is what Lewis says. Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours and yours because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? Lewis asks. The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters. Even in social life, Lewis says, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no one bothers who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas, if you simply tell the truth without carrying two pence, how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all of life, top to bottom. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. I don't know about you this morning, but that landed right between the eyes for me. And Father Abraham models for us how to tr- find our true selves. It's not by turning inward or by crafting a public profile that we, that we constantly have to groom. Our true selves, Lewis says, are found by fixing our gaze on Jesus Christ and the promises of forgiveness and transformation that come from him and him alone. Lose your life and you will save it. Or as Charles Wesley hymned so long ago, Jesus, lover of our souls, let us to thy bosom fly. So we see all throughout the Bible that Abraham typifies for you and for me what the life of faith is all about. An unwavering attachment to the promises that God has made. Because if God makes a promise, then that promise is completely trustworthy. Trustworthy. And all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So when it comes to the promises of God, we need not waver. But there is another surprising move that the New Testament makes when it speaks about the faith of Abraham. This 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 caught me off guard too. Not only does Abraham model for you and for me what the life of faith is, But we read in various places in the New Testament that Abraham also models for us the faithfulness of God. Romans 8.32, for example, tells us that God did not spare his own son, but freely handed him over for us all. And here's the shocker. That's the same language that's used in the Old Testament to describe Abraham's offering of Isaac up on Mount Moriah. You all know that horrific scene where God tests the faith of Abraham and asks, in the words of Genesis 22, for your son, your only son, the son whom you love. And just before the knife falls from Abraham to plunge into his son Isaac, God stops him. Stop. I see that you believe. And the Lord provided. But Romans 8 and John 3.16 that we heard read so beautifully this morning and texts all over the Bible tell us that Abraham's Mount Moriah moment with Isaac isn't over yet. Another moment would come in time with a different father and a different son. Not Abraham and Isaac this time, but God the Father and God the Son in Jesus Christ. But unlike Abraham's knife-stopping encounter in the second episode all of humanity will gasp in horror and in wonder as we see the Father plunge the knife of His own judgment into His Son. We can't escape the weight of that scene. He gave Him up for us all. And because of this, Paul tells us, we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. The knife is plunged. We no longer face the blade of God's judgment. We only now know the searing heat of His love. And nothing Paul tells us death, life, angels, or demons, present or future events, heights and depths, no, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, we can never grow tired or exhausted or hear too often what our Lord has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ and Lent is as good a time as any to sing together in the hymns of the faith songs like Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Because of this Man of Sorrows, our Lord Jesus Christ, we share in the promises that God gave to Abraham so long ago. Through your offspring, Abraham, Shall all the world be blessed? So yes, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord.